Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Donovan X. Ramsey. Donovan X. Ramsey is a former staff writer who covered Black life in Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Times. Before joining the Times, he was a contributing writer for such publications as GQ, Vice, Wall Street Journal Magazine, and The Atlantic, where he wrote memorable profiles of such figures as Bubba Wallace, Killer Mike, and Ibram X. Kendi. Ramsey also served as commentary editor of The Marshall Project and deputy editor of Complex.com. An Ohio native, he is a graduate of Morehouse College and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Good. And I'm sorry, I should say good morning, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a little early, but uh, <laughs> I can't complain. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the Marshall Project. The Marshall Project um, is a independent newsroom that's dedicated just to criminal justice stories. Um, and yeah, it's won some Pulitzers and it really is, you know, uh, a great team of folks there doing doing the hard work. Awesome. And I mean, you know, I was talking about in, in the book, when crack was king, you no, it's not about you necessarily, but you talk about how you were five in 1993 or so. I'm like, man, this guy has done so much in a short time. Some really impressive magazines and, and publications, of course. I'd love to know how it all got started. And again, if I haven't you know, officially welcome, it's a pleasure. Over my shoulder here, if you're watching, is When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. And some guy named Donovan X. Ramsey wrote that. You know him? <laughs> pretty good writer i know huh? him a little bit i'm sort of getting to know him yes oh, wow that's <laughs> yes. deep that's kind of meta right there that's kind of meta right there. <laughs> but all jokes yeah. aside you know it's been it's been uh you know you've been on all kinds of uh shows recently in the in publications and in, in print online and it really is a um, incredible book and as you'll tell you'll say a lot more eloquently than myself it's it's not about a bygone era it's it's about today it's you know there's a lot of connections to today and everything like that I'd love to know how it all started. Um, your relationship with with words, with language. I mean, were you the kid, you know, checking out fifteen library books? Were you the one doing the summer reading challenges? How did how did words, language, particularly, work in in your household and your background? I was definitely a reader as a kid. I, my mom, uh, you know, reminds me that I didn't talk until I was about three. Hmm. So, uh, which I've learned might be a sign of of, of something else <laughs> but in all that time that I wasn't talking I was just taking in the world and um you know my older sister Brittany you know was was in school before me and everything that she learned she brought home so I had that added advantage of learning how to read early through my older sister and um I've always loved reading so my grandmother um 
would take us to the library and she would, um, you know, get us, she like got us our library cards and whenever we spent the weekends with her, it was, you know, get a couple of books, get a couple of VHS tapes. And um, so I had that relationship, I think, really early on with the world of books. Um, I was also blessed enough that my mom, you know, despite the fact that we didn't have much, you know, we had a bookshelf at home. And uh, there were all of the things that she read, mostly poetry, a lot of uh, fiction by Black women authors. So I grew up on Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and Terry McMillan and, you know, Toni K. Bambara. I mean, all of these great, great writers. And, um, you know, and that's the, the kind of work that I think first inspired me. People sort of reflecting on life in this country, in this society, from the bottom up. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate in your acknowledgments the extensive list of shout outs to like authors and poets and, you know, bell hooks with the small b, the small h, and, you know, some of those that you referenced right there. I appreciate that. So there were, there were a couple, there were three letters you threw in there I didn't recognize VHS. <laughs> i know i know we, we absolutely uh my like grandmother was a big movie buff and she loved horror movies we had that in common oh um uh, may the lord you know rest her soul that she uh was not like the usual kind of like cookie baking nana she was a tough uh-huh. lady and um she had a, a a pretty extensive vhs collection and also a vhs rewinder oh, for any young whoa. people that would be listening that it was a special device that you would put VHS tapes in and it would do the rewinding for you. So that way you wouldn't wear down the motor on your VHS player. Always thinking ahead, (laughs) always thinking ahead. Who, who were, who were you reading? What, what were some of, you know, especially as you got older in the high school and college, who were some of the really, you know, chill inducing writers, the ones who really maybe even made you into a writer? Yeah. Toni Morrison is, for me, the the greatest to ever do it. I mean, mm. I don't think that there is, uh, you know, she's, of course, very lauded and, and awarded, but I don't think that there is an award good enough for uh. what she did with language in terms of, you know, creating new language, you know, thereby giving shape to ideas that it kind of like existed on the tip of our tongues. Mm. Um, and that was so meaningful to me when I read Song of Solomon, um, you know, she's a writer from Ohio, I'm from Ohio. Um, many of her books are set in Ohio. I I really felt like she wrote Song of Solomon for me. Mm. This story, this, this sort of coming of age story about a young black man growing up in, in Ohio. Um, so Toni Morrison is, I, I can't overstate her Mm. her impression on me and that's still who I judge my writing against so whenever I am stuck you know I think ah this isn't this isn't anywhere as good you know as what Toni Morrison would do and I think that having such a great writer as an idol has uh, propelled me uh, creatively because you know that is kind of my north star Um, also I read a lot of Philip Roth Okay. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Philip Roth. Uh, the first book of his that I read was The Plot Against America. Mm. And, uh, you know, which is a reimagining of uh, World War II if uh, Hindenburg, who was a Nazi sympathizer, would have become president. 
and it's so creative, but it's also so real, and mm -hmm. it grounds these big issues in um, in his own family dynamic because he uses uh, his his own family as characters in the book, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just tremendous. Also, love the human stain by Philip Roth, okay, and his uh, treatment of identity is mm -hmm. so layered and complex. So. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I was reading in high school. And also, you know, we were forced to read the classics. A few of them stuck. I really enjoyed Frankenstein. Okay. Um, you know, Frankenstein was tremendous for me. I uh, really enjoyed um, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora mm -hmm. Neale Hurston. I think it's something that every young person should read. I'm also a really, really big fan of Colson Whitehead okay. and his fiction. He did just one um, hit after another, huh? I mean, they're incredible, but they're also such uh, entertaining reads, huh. you know, that I think yeah. that, um, you know, that there's a lot of stuff, you know, including books like mine that can be really heavy. Um, and I, I try to have fun and when crap is king, but I'm inspired by people like Colson Whitehead who seem just mm. to be having so much fun mm. on the page. Mm. What's the one about the elevator salesman? Oh, that is the intuitionist. Right. I She's mean, a uh, elevator what, what inspector. And, you know, and and it's so, you know, I think that like he could have been an amazing journalist because, mm -hmm. you know, he does such intense research before writing any of his books and what, mm -hmm. you know, you can ground kind of a thriller about an elevator uh, uh, inspection person who is like the most gifted elevator inspector. Mm -hmm. um that like that feels plausible because the world is so real sure yeah i wonder about ideas of representation um you talked about i mean tony morrison as a black woman as a woman from ohio like yourself um and just you know all this different subcultures that make us up i mean did you feel especially growing up like you were reading about you know the ideas of mirrors and and windows did you feel like you were you had to really seek out that representation or do you feel like it was served up to you on a silver platter or, or not at all? I was really fortunate to grow up in a community where, um, you know, people offered me books that they knew that I would be interested in. You know, when you're a kid that's bookish um, and people may not know this about, you know, tough neighborhoods because they, you know, watch TV and they think that there are drug pushers around every corner trying to get kids hooked on drugs by, you know, giving drugs away. <laughs> but my um, interaction was actually that like, you know, some of the toughest characters in my neighborhood would see me going back and forth from school and they would say, stick, stick with it. You know, you don't want to be like me, um, you know, stay, stay in those books. So I got lots of recommendations from just my neighbors and, mm. and my family. And also I you know, was really blessed to have some great educators. I went to a school called the Columbus Afrocentric School, which was um, in downtown Columbus, elementary, middle and high school that was focused on um, giving black students an education that centered us. So um, I had you know, English teachers that, that offered me I mean, so many incredible authors and books. And they were young people, I think, just like straight out of college that were just giving us what they had learned, you know, like a few years before. And um, so that, you know, I feel really lucky about on the representation front. But I do think that everybody 
you know, every person's different and unique and you'll never feel perfectly represented by the books on the shelf. And I think that those of us that kind of struggle with that feeling of, you know, is there anybody out there like me? You know, eventually, if you love writing enough and language enough, you do turn to writing to, you know, create the book for for you. Right. Paraphrasing Toni Morrison, right? If you don't see the book that's out there about you, write it, you know, write it yourself type of thing, right? Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. How about in, you know, 2023, as you're, you know, you're a journalist, you're a published author, who are some of those writers who are really pushing you along, challenging you, or just, you know, like you said, with Close and Whitehead, just making you sit back and go, dang. Yeah. <laughs> um, Colson Whitehead, for sure. I'm really excited for, for his latest book. Mm -hmm. um, his book, uh, The Nickel Boys, is one of the few books that I read while I was writing. Um, so I was able to like take a break and be inspired by, by that. Um, also, I really love uh, Matt Johnson's work. I think that he, again, you know, what's funny is that I write... Um, like I'm a journalist and my book is narrative nonfiction about, you know, a pretty heavy topic, but I really like to read fun fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, things that are, you know, fantasy, things that, you know, have some like magic realism to it. Um, I really like Stephen King. Mm. Um, you know, that the cover of When Crack Was King is actually inspired a little bit by the cover for it. Uh -huh. So the uh -huh. color scheme for it in the text um, because I think that that story of these young people, you know, who are ignored and not listened to, but who are being hunted down by this force that's much bigger than them, um, that leverages their fears and anxieties, you know, that felt to me like a bit like what it was to grow up during the crack era. Mm. And, um, so, you know, when it came down to designing the cover, that was one of the reference points that I shared. Wow. Very was, interesting. Was it. Wow. Your fellow, I'm talking about Matt Johnson, your fellow Fresh Air guest. He, I have not read his work. He's hilarious, though, on his interview. I was like, man, this guy is just like a real dry sense of humor. Just hilarious. I don't know. <laughs> no, he's he, he's he's so funny and the work is so funny. I bet. And like imaginative. Yeah. I appreciate all that. So when crack was king is, I think you even put out the word count and the you know one hundred and ten thousand word you know something like that. But it's you know it's it's long. It's three hundred sixty some pages plus all you know bibliography, works cited. I wonder you know just about being a journalist and you talked about some of the really interesting or in the bio talks about some of the really interesting people you've you've dealt with, you've interviewed, you've you've written about. The idea of like long form versus longer form. I mean, <laughs> you write fairly long form pieces right, for Vice, GQ, et cetera, LA Times. But what was it like to, you know, to write a long, long form? I'm, I'm obviously, I'm a huge fan. You know, we get subtleties, we get nuances. It's not just sound bites, if you will, or whatever the, whatever the print version of sound bites is. <laughs> I wonder about really just putting yourself five years you talked about or so, you know, on and off. And I'm sure there was stuff even before that that went into when crack was king. I wonder just about what it was like to really take a deep dive into such an important topic? Peter, it is the the hardest thing that I've ever done. <laughs> and, you know, I am naturally a pretty uh, verbose person. <laughs> and I think that my writing, you know, sort of tends to go along as well. 
And, you know, when I set out to write the book, I thought that it would just be like writing, you know, a handful of articles. I, you know, that was how I kind of wrapped my, my, my mind around it. And what people don't tell you is that when you write something, something book length, especially if you already have a, a practice as a journalist or maybe writing short stories, mm -hmm. that you can only do the thing that you have practiced at, but for so long. So, you know, I got about 10,000 words in and uh, I used up all of my tricks as a writer. <laughs> and uh, then I got about, you know, say 30,000 words in and I completely fell out of love with my own voice. No. Um, you know, it was I that I didn't like anything that I was writing, you know, that everything, every word that I put together felt tired and you know, redundant. Um, so I had to, you know, which is a good thing. I had to create again. I had to figure things out. So there was something like, like how to introduce a character, um, how to describe someone physically, mm -hmm. you know, that you get to a point where you've done it all the ways that you know how, mm -hmm. and then you got to figure out new ways. And I think that it is uh, that that's the sort of make or break point. And it's probably why it took me so long was I had to take um, pauses in between to read, hmm. to listen to music, to uh, to sort of think creatively about, you know, uh, other ways that I could tell the story. Mm -hmm. That's so cool about the the kind of like uh, the catalyst, the the inspiration for like that second part. Once you get past the you know, the, the 10,000, the hundred, you know, like you talked about, are, are you a, are you a Beethoven listener? Are you a Metallica listener? Are you a Beyonce listener? Are you a, you know, Enya and soundscapes? What, is there a particular type of music that really foments the, the creativity or just depend on the day? It's definitely jazz. Okay. It's, um, because I need, uh, I, I can't listen to music with, with lyrics. Yeah. Um, because it, it completely throws off my like ability to think I'm 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 so language focused as a person that it's hard for me to hear language and not be tuned into it. That makes sense, yeah. So um, you know, I like to listen to um John Coltrane. Okay. Uh, you know, incredible. Um there's a great group out of Atlanta called Jazz Specs, um, that is um uh, really really fun and has like great like energy mm. you know to their work um i'm not sure if they're still recording but they you know released i think about two 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 to three albums mm. um miles miles davis okay um things that really kind of keep your energy up yeah without being distracted mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense the 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 book again is called when crack was king of people's history of a misunderstood era and you were, I don't know if it's the very, very beginning. I think it is like an introduction. You're writing about how, you know, a lot of the work you've done over the years, you know, about Black Americans, about society, about, you know, everything that you've written about. I know you have a diverse um, series of things you've written about, but it all seemed to lead back to some crack era law, right? Or yeah. there was some, um, you know, there was something that connected you to, you know, in the crack era, which you know, we can't put an exact year on it or whatever, but I wonder if that was one of the seeds for the book. I wonder just about seeds for the book, um, some of the catalysts for, for writing this. Yeah. Um, 
I would say that the first seed for the book was um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, oh, okay. uh, which I read, I think it was right out of journalism school. And uh, for those that haven't read it, you know, it's a book about the great migration of Black folks from Southern states um, to Northern cities. Um, and it was a story that was familiar to me because I'm from Ohio. Uh, my family's originally from the South. Um, and, you know, I like knew it intuitively, right, that I was a part of some type of like larger movement, but no one had ever kind of put words to it, this idea that um, that those of us that live in these northern cities, you know, have like migrant stories mm. and that um, and that we were Southern and that we entered a new place with new customs and new language and kind of started our lives over in search of something better mm. than what we had at home. And um, in her book focuses on um, three characters that left different cities for new cities. And I read that and I was so inspired at the way that she had taken something that people just hadn't given much thought and she put context to it and made, made meaning out of it. So I thought afterwards, well, this is why you write a book. You know, like if you're gonna write something book length that I guess should do this kind of work. Um, but then, you know, years went by of me covering black America with a focus on the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And people that I interviewed were constantly, you know, talking about our system and they would just kind of pepper in the words crack epidemic, hmm. you know, oh, you know, we police this way because during the crack epidemic, blah, blah, blah. And I realized in those interviews that lots of people were mentioning the crack epidemic, but they weren't talking about it in the same ways mm -hmm. that they, you know, all seem to have a different take. Um, so for me, you know, being somebody that was born in 1987, crack predates me. Hmm. Um, I had also my own ideas, but it seemed important to, to do the research. So I, I, I tried looking for a book and there wasn't anything authoritative that existed. Hmm. So I thought, you know, as, you know, you mentioned Toni Morrison, <laughs> there's hmm. a book that you want to read, you know, then like you should write it. So hmm. um it seemed, you know, seemed like a perfect opportunity to take, you know, the inspiration that I got from Isabel Wilkerson, this topic that I knew was big and vast yeah. and touched lots of different people and to try to give it, you know, a, a proper treatment. Hmm. The book does start off with you talking about a, a woman from the neighborhood, Michelle, and and she definitely comes up towards the end as well, kind of wondering, you know, how she's doing, what she's up to all these years later. But you you write very well about how, you know, I mean, Crackhead was and I guess I mean, is definitely I mean, still an insult, right? It's one of the worst things you can call somebody but it's also offhanded like, ah, you know, Crackhead. You talk about, you know, like Chris Rock's character from New Jack City mm -hmm. and just um, the disdain that that people use and use the word for and of course that's connected to you know we'll talk about this a little bit later but you make such a great connection to like you know joe biden and the clintons in the early 90s and super predators and and basically all the the myths that surround um the crack epidemic you're obviously you obviously traffic in words i wonder 
you can kind of talk a little bit about how the connotations that come with crackhead have really how even last to this day, like the negative, a lot of them are just not even true, but a lot of the things that are associated with with crackhead and, and just crack in general. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for anybody that was alive during the period, you will, re- will remember that there was a tremendous amount of media around the crack epidemic and around people who used and sold crack, but that that media was um, really inconsistent. Mm. It was largely uh, propaganda, to be honest, right? That like, you know, drug users were seen as almost like zombies. Mm. And I'm sorry, I should say crack users in particular were seen basically as zombies. And in drug dealers were seen as these super predators, you know, a term that Hillary Clinton used in the you know in the early 90s and you know what it did was it made crack crack addicts crack dealers seem otherworldly mm. and it made care you know caricatures out of real people to the point that you know it's a term that people could sort of throw around loosely mm-hmm. as a way of insulting someone and um you know it's my belief that 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 you know was done to try to save people's lives, that sort of level of propaganda and hype. But ultimately the cost of it was that we created such distance between, mm-hmm. you know, addicts and non-addicts, between dealers and non-dealers, that those people became the people over there. Mm-hmm. And we're still paying for that as a society. Mm-hmm. You know, that because uh, drug epidemics come and go. And we haven't gotten better at handling them or, you know, we don't have enough empathy for the people Mm -hmm. that get caught up in them. So, you know, I think that the, but I should also say the fact that that happened to a drug that disproportionately hit, hit black America um, is no surprise because, you know, if it's one thing that this country is good at, it's flattening out black people. Hmm. flattening out things that happen to black people into these easily dismissible symbols Hmm. yeah and i think that uh yes it's the shame i appreciate that it was just a kind of a footnote you were writing about one of the laws in the 90s and about maybe like a a, what do you call it in in addition to the law or whatever and you meant and you used the term this was like 96 97 you use the term undocumented you know which at the term which at the time was not even a term that was used often right it was usually the illegal immigrants. Um, I was just really Im- impressed at kind of like the good historical revisionism there, like in mm-hmm. using a term like that. And I think it just kind of permeates throughout the book where, you know, you in looking back at the quote unquote crack era, you you don't dehumanize the people. That's kind of an obvious statement I think I'm making, but um, but it's what makes the book so good is that there's the there isn't there is not the dehumanization. Michelle is a person. She's not just a zombie down the street. The structure of the book is that you have it in like mainly eight parts. You have the origins, you have incubation, you have the outbreak, you have um, expansion, surge, peak, the decline, and then the recovery. And you mainly deal with, I guess, five or six. You deal with Sean McCrary. Am I saying that right? McCray. McCray, excuse me, from Newark, New Jersey. Lenny, Lenny's out of is from LA, from South Central, or what's now called South LA. Kurt, I love his last name. Is it Schmoke? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> got to do the sh- part right. And <laughs> you know who's the former mayor of Baltimore, 
Elgin from Yonkers, New York. We definitely humanize the epidemic or whatever you want to call it there. And then, you know, of course, a book like this has to have background introduction. It, it can't just start in 1985 or whenever, you know, supposedly the, the era started. Um, you have the origins where you introduce the characters now. I really like that um, that plot device, if you will, <laughs> right? Where we get an idea of, um, so Lenny is now Miss, remind me of her last name, please. Miss Woodley. I just thought that was so cool about, you know, the after. We get the after and then we can learn more <laughs> about how she got there, right? And then there's, you know, we talk about incubation. One of the first chapters, if not the chapter, is called Dreams and Nightmares. Late 20th century, you know, you set the tone with like the Black Panthers, which, you know, rose definitely after like Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. The Kerner Commission that really pointed a finger and said, hey, the American government, you know, white supremacy is the problem here. But that all really got swallowed up. And, you know, and then to the Nixon times and stuff like that, uh, you know, with the militarization and the Southern strategy. I wonder if you could maybe talk specifically about like the Southern strategy, what that was, and just about Nixon and just the rising militarization or kind of like, you know, war on drugs. Yeah, that, you know, within American politics, it has always been um, uh, advantageous to, to leverage race that, you know, that that is just in the foundation of, of our country's character and in our politics that, um, you know, that people used to call it the Negro problem <laughs> kind of euphemistically. Mm. And, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, the country's not what it used to be, that that has always been a vein that has run through it. So, um, you know, the Southern strategy was a uh, sort of Republican political strategy to separate uh, poor white voters from um, from people along class lines that they otherwise have a lot in common with mm-hmm. by basically appealing to their racial fears and tensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that um, definitely come up around crack because the crack era is really an era of retrenchment from the winds of the civil rights movement. Um, and from the energy of the Black Power movement. So you have in the 60s and 70s, what feels like all of these incredible advances for people of color and um, also a lot of activity, right? Like politically and angst um, being expressed by people of color and all types of other folks too, right? Folks on the anti-war left, women, I mean, any marginalized person Mm -hmm right, sort of had a moment during that period. And there were people in the country, the so-called silent majority, who, you know, felt like enough. (laughs) You know, enough of this, uh, which, you know, sounds very familiar in the time that we're living in now, that, you know, there were people who felt like we need to take the country back. And one of the ways that they did that was this war on drugs that um, you know, under Nixon really started to criminalize people on the left. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, associating hippies and Black people with drugs, um, which is really critical uh, to sort of point out, right? Because almost every group, you know, has levels of drug use and drug abuse. So if you do need a mechanism to interfere in people's lives, to step into people's lives, to criminalize people, 
drugs are a perfect tool because mm -hmm. drugs exist within every community. So, you know, if I wanted to start a war against, you know, um, uh, white women, <laughs> that I could like ideally find a substance that, mm -hmm. that, that white women use and then target them for the use of that substance. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's what it seems, you know, according to the record, and at least comments made by people in the Nixon administration later on in the Reagan administration mm -hmm. um, into the Clinton administration and Joe Biden being a part of all of this as somebody who was a right. U.S. senator, you know, throughout the entire time and was a big drug warrior that that, you know, people scored scored political points. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that there weren't real issues. Right. You had record crime. You had record violence in American cities. But the evidence suggested that wasn't just about drugs, that that had to do with larger economic conditions and the availability of guns. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, thank you for that. You know, to even talking about the silent majority connections to today, it's, you know, good thing that kids aren't going to learn about that in school, right? Oh, you know, that that is, you know, is, is like a part of the goal is, you know, trying to people that want to, um, you know, fight against supposed CRT, that mm. the goal is to, you know, hide and um, mystify mm. that history so we can't learn from it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of, you know, the reason why I wanted to write this book is because, you know, history is cyclical. You know, that oh, like yeah. we're not moving in a straight line. We're kind of moving in a spiral, mm -hmm. right? Where, yes, we are progressing forward, but we, you know, come back mm. to these spaces yeah. time and time again. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from how this nation failed during the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And especially as we go through another drug epidemic with opioids, right? you know, we should be looking back at how Black Americans really saved ourselves yeah. um, during a really, really tough era. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, too. Like when, you know, the federal law was made is how the mandatory sentences for crack cocaine were exponentially more than for cocaine, for, you know, the powder, you know, not always, but often racially separated in those ways. I know that was something that the President Obama changed a bit you know, took it down. But I mean, something that's just, you know, on his face is incredibly racist and un unequal. I wonder, and then, you know, watching the way that the opi opioid epidemic has been treated. And I think in many ways, there are a lot of good things about the way it's been treated, right? It's a lot more about, okay, let's, let's get treatment. Let's treat it as an addiction. Let's treat them as people. I wonder if, you know, if it has been more, more in stark relief, stark contrast as you've seen the way the opioid epidemic has been covered often with, you know, white people, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like, absolutely. like where was that sympathy in the eighties and the nineties, you know, in the crack yeah. epidemic? You know, that this, this country is so inconsistent when it comes to drugs, right? That, you know, for me growing up in a nation or really in a neighborhood that was hard hit by the crack epidemic, I was fed so much anti-drug, um, um, propaganda mm. I'm still terrified of drugs mm. but you know when I got to college and grad school and I was living in New York and you see people using drugs recreationally you realize oh 
we didn't all get the same message. Right. That 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 there is a double standard mm-hmm. on drugs in this country. And, you know, and that goes back um, as far as the 70s with the glamorization of cocaine mm-hmm. for some folks. And it was the glamorization of cocaine and it's um, uh, normalization of, mm-hmm. of cocaine that led to the crack epidemic, right? People right. In, 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 you know, neighborhoods like, like mine um, were only attracted to, to crack in the beginning because it was cheap, accessible cocaine. Mm. They wanted to be, you know, fancy, like the people mm. in Hollywood that were doing powder cocaine. Mm. Um, uh, and then, you know, when it comes to a substance like, you know, I mean, when, you know, when it comes to opioids and a substance like fentanyl, um, it's, it's good to see the, the empathy that the right. government and the average American seems to have. But I have to say that I don't think that we're any smarter as mm. it relates to the policy. Mm. You know, I read a story recently that there are supposed to be these um, good Samaritan laws that if you are a person who is, you know, using, um, let's say, fentanyl with like a friend and your friend overdoses, mm-hmm. and then you call 911, that you will not be charged with possession okay. of drugs. And this is a law that is, um, these laws exist in many jurisdictions as a way of just trying to save people's lives that mm. otherwise folks won't call 911. Well, what's happening is prosecutors are not charging those good Samaritans with possession. They're charging them with things like um, uh, endangerment for other people that may be present or for the paramedics that are there, you know, making the argument that they've been exposed to fentanyl. So they've been endangered, you know, paramedics. And what that says to me is we just haven't learned the lesson that that we would um, rather create more harm by criminalizing people than to try to take an approach that will save people's lives. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. The, so you're talking about like kind of like the Hollywoodization of cocaine and, you know, so late seventies, early eighties, there's some really important events. Um, you know, Richard Pryor had the tragic event where he, you know, free base and he basically like almost, almost uh, burned himself to death. Right. Yeah. You know, that's such an interesting story because um, that had always been, what people said that Richard Pryor was freebasing. Freebase yeah. is the um, first name for for crack. It was a way of making smokable cocaine, but it used more volatile chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, important to note, then, right, that the invention of, of of crack has its roots in a scientific community. That it wasn't, you know, street kids mm-hmm. that were creating freebase. It was people with a, a knowledge of how to separate the base of a compound from its other elements, how, mm-hmm. how to free the base. Um, uh, Richard Pryor's uh, widow has since said that he actually did not blow himself up freebasing, but he had attempted suicide. He had poured right. a high proof rum on himself and set himself on fire. And that just goes towards, right, like how many myths we mm. were fed about um crack in particular, right? That mm-hmm. Richard Pryor blew himself up, that Lynn Bias, um, the basketball star who had just been drafted to the Boston Celtics, um, uh, that his heart stopped because he smoked crack. Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn Bias's heart did stop, but he was using powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn Bias's death in particular is what spurred the 100 to 1 
um, sentencing disparity. So, you know, again, these distinctions are important because the myth goes towards this idea of crack as a super drug, crack Mm -hmm. users as subhuman people, Mm -hmm. crack dealers as super predators. Well, I wish it wasn't, but it's a great transition into, I, I guess, maybe 84, 85, the Jimmy's World story. Um, you know, you talk about like myths. And this was a story that ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize, kind of. I don't know if it has an asterisk next to it or, you know, how Wikipedia would list it because it it won, but was, you know, basically taken back. And this was a a, a woman who wrote about, um, you know, what was he? A uh, very young kid, Jimmy, and just the hellish life that he lived and getting high and, you know, just like a crack den and all of the stereotypes, all the myths coming together in one, you know, if anybody would have done any sort of anybody at the, at the newspaper would have done any sort of, you know, backing up or looking for, for facts, they would have seen this as a, an absolutely outlandish story. I wonder not so much about the person who wrote it and about the newspaper, but about the public kind of accepting it, um, accepting this story, like, oh yeah, that could happen. Yeah, that story uh, is always so wild to me because a lot of people don't know about it. It's the yeah. only Pulitzer that's ever been given back. Huh. Um, and Janet Cook was the first Black woman to win a Pulitzer for, right. for news writing. So it was a big deal when it happened. Um, yeah, and it was a story about a nine-year-old heroine. Nine-year-old, right. So this really is, it predates the crack epidemic, but it's an example of the reporting that mm. was to come. You know, and... Aside from the fact that Janet Cook and the story of Jimmy's world really shows the extent to which people are willing to believe the worst Mm. about Black folks in particular, Mm -hmm. that, you know, so much about that story screamed uh, fabrication from the very beginning. Um, And lots of people at the Washington Post and that newsroom set aside their journalistic standards to to publish it, to like bring it to the fore and to put it on the front page of the paper, right? So mm-hmm. Bob Woodward was executive editor at the time, someone who Big was name. lauded yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for his ability to, you know, handle anonymous sources, never looked into who Jimmy actually was, that they, you know, ran the story with, with illustrations because they couldn't use pictures. Mm. Um, and then, you know, when black staffers at the post said, this doesn't seem right, I don't think we should do Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. they were accused of professional jealousy. Uh. You know, then, you know, beyond all of the issues with the story and it's still going to print, it also gets nominated for a Pulitzer. So, you know, the newsroom decided, yes, this is a questionable story, but we still think that it's good enough to nominate. Mm. And then it wins the Pulitzer. So the entire journalism community right, has a, uh, had a commitment to advancing and elevating mm-hmm. this storytelling that was um, far from sound. Yes. And, you know, it's a shame. You know, I am a journalist in part because there are so many lies told about the community that I come from, and there's so mm-hmm. much misinformation about the community that I come from. Mm-hmm. And always, uh, you know, joke, uh, with uh, with with my partner, I say, you know, you can say anything about black people, mm. <laughs> because mm. uh, our lives are shrouded in mystery, mm. because people sort of 
believe that we must be fundamentally different. And the truth <laughs> is actually a lot more boring, which is that like, we're not mythical, mystical characters, we're just brown people. <laughs> and that our lives are um, moved by larger forces in society and we make decisions independently and personally, just like, you know, white people do and Asian people do, but you know, that doesn't stop stories like Jimmy's World from being published even, yeah. even today. Yeah, what an amazing story. I mean, thanks for bringing that to light. It was kind of random, but I, I got like a chuckle out of it or like, well, that was weird. That Gabriel Garcia Marquez weighed in on it. And he was a former journalist, talking about the story. And he was a former oh, journalist yeah. as well, right? But he, he basically said something to the effect of like, it was a, it's great fiction, but it's not necessarily <laughs> yeah. the greatest reporting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they should have given her the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Exactly, yeah. The... Even going further back in history, I mean, I, I'd known some of this, but just the the ways in which, I mean, almost, I mean, maybe literally Coca-Cola because of that propaganda and hysteria over, you know, suppose you talk about like mythical figures and this like, you know, like a, like like minorities, you know, Latinos, black people became, you know, super predators, super people on cocaine or, or marijuana and all of this. And it was just like, whoa and it was just so even leading, leading to like a massacre right yeah exactly um, there a was, race, uh, racist massacre yeah that the the atlanta race riot um started because uh in part because of cocaine this idea um well okay so to kind of take a step back that yeah. a lot of people have heard that coca-cola which was founded in atlanta Mm -hmm. um, included at some point cocaine in its recipe. Mm -hmm. And that's partly true that there was coca leaf yeah. uh, extract, uh, which uh, still there is coca leaf extract in Coca-Cola. There is. Uh, but they have removed the, um, the, the, the narcotics. Properties. Okay. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Uh, but it is a part of the original uh, uh, recipe for mm -hmm. it. And it just has to do with the history of cocaine, that cocaine was uh, put into lots of drinks and substances. And, you know, you could get a, a cocktail with a little cocaine in right. it. The bar. And what grew out of that was this idea that um, Black people, Black men in particular, went crazy when consuming cocaine. So, you know, store, I mean, publications like the New York Times ran headlines about Negro cocaine fiends raping mm. white women. Mm. And so when there was a story of white women assaulted in Atlanta in, I believe, 1903, um, lots of uh, white folks gathered in downtown Atlanta and they started uh, a riot that led to the massacre of um, black, black folks in that city. And they destroyed that they started in the main business district in Black Atlanta, which was Auburn Avenue, first destroying bars where mm. drinks like Coca-Cola would be served and then working their way into Black neighborhoods. And, um, you know, it's a story as old as time, right? That, mm. that like this fear of what a substance can do in the wrong body, mm. um, creating such a violent response. Mm. Wow. So as we get into the individual characters and their stories, you know, the... Uh, with the mayor, the the future mayor, Kurt Smoke, and you know, just one of those guys that we all know. He's just meant for big things. He's just he's brilliant. He's fairly reserved, but he's an incredible scholar. You know, we see down the road that he's not he's not the type to necessarily make fiery speeches and fiery proclamations. 
but just brilliant. We know that it was coming in his time as mayor, I believe. I'm not sure if he's still in like city council or something, but there was the there was a drug buy, a setup where I, Marty Ward, I want to say one of the police officers was killed. And, you know, Kurt knew him and was obviously was was in shock and incredibly saddened. But after, you know, impressed for the criminals to be to be prosecuted, of course, to the full extent of the law, but also after a little bit of reflection was that's kind of where decriminalization became a thing for him. Right. Yeah. Like this is something let's let's take a step back and, you know, you can talk morals and ethics all you want about like the drug war. But simply if you're talking practicalities, right, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked the way it's been done. Right. So there was some of that there. And he later on in later years, he he was given speeches for the, even the Democratic National Convention. And his thing was like to talk about decriminalization, how we could do it. And he was almost just roundly just either ignored or like, what are you doing? This can't possibly happen. What had he seen? What was it that you know spoke to this idea that decriminalization is the way to go? Bert Schmoke just a brilliant guy. You know, he um, and really charmed and positioned for leadership from the time that he was uh, a boy. He integrated um, Baltimore City College, which which is a high school despite its name. Uh, Baltimore City College. He he helped integrate that school. He was uh, a senior class president. He was captain of the football team senior and junior year. Um, took them to and won two state championships in those years. Dang, I know he's, and then he's Yeah, you know, like recruited to Yale on a mm. football scholarship, and then becomes a Rhodes Scholar, goes to Oxford, right. gets a law degree from Harvard, and he wants nothing more than to go back and improve Baltimore as, as mayor. So, you know, his first stop was as a prosecutor. And as you said, you know, he, he listened to um, a colleague, a, a black detective named Marty Ward shot during a drug buy. Mm -hmm. And he listened to that tape of Marty Ward dying. And he concluded that the guy that shot Marty Ward was as addicted to the drug money as addicts were to the drug. Hmm. And he wanted to remove hmm. that incentive that he thought that 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 was his first sort of glimpse of this could be different if we just legalized it, that we would take mm -hmm. away the the uh, money, which would take away then the violence that that protects the trade. Right. So uh, he also, too, you know, had the luck of being married. He still is married to a physician. Ah. Um, so he. I think learned from his wife and was inspired by the fact that Baltimore has a medical institution like Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. to say that we could have a public health response right. um, to, to drugs and not just criminal justice. Mm -hmm. Also want to underline the fact that um, while Baltimore struggled with crack, Baltimore historically has had a problem with heroin, mm -hmm. that it is one of the major um, ports for heroin in this country. Mm -hmm. So the heroin there has always been cheaper and more accessible. So they mm -hmm. still struggle with that. And, you know, heroin in the eighties um, came along with higher rates of HIV and AIDS because of the mm -hmm. intravenous drug use. Right. So I think that Kurt Schmoke, he was dealing with a city that had a unique problem, but also unique resources. Yes. And he wanted Baltimore to model a public health response and mm -hmm. you know as you mentioned he was he was laughed <laughs> you know out of many congressional hearings uh because people just thought that was ridiculous 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it's really emblematic of just politics as usual, I guess, as we see with, you know, Trumpsters and all that, the ones who seem to yell the loudest get the most results, right? But the ones yeah. who are the most right, the ones who are, you know, have the confidence of, of knowledge seem to be laughed at or ignored, right? Well, you know, it's 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 important to remember too, and, you know, I really learned this covering the criminal justice system that it's big business. Mm. It is, um, you know, aside from the sort of like private institutions that make money off of incarcerating people, mm -hmm. and that's everything from bail bondsmen to the people who do, uh, you know, the, 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 the ankle monitors. Sure. To the food service, that, right? Food service, mm -hmm. you know, but it's also a jobs program for a lot of mm. people in this country that a lot of uh, public funds, you know, make their way to police departments. A lot of um, uh, military equipment makes its way to to, to police yep. departments. And a lot of politicians are elected with the support of police unions, mm -hmm. right? So there is a, a system that is in place that people are reluctant to disrupt, right? even if it doesn't show results. Right. His eureka, if you will, about decriminalization, which I'm sure had been building for years. It wasn't just a one-time thing. But that comes after years of, you know, the of Reagan's war war on drugs. And we all, you know, we all remember just say no. And um, but you know, so interesting. And I knew about this, but really you put it into great detail about, you know, the Bidens and Clintons and Democrats. You see, you know, names like Chuck Schumer and you know, names you still hear today. And just about how they were almost trying to out-Republican the Republicans, right? Yeah. With really tough, I mean, shoot, when the anecdote about, about Clinton going to like personally watch the death penalty being carried out was just like, geez, because, you know, today Democrats want to set themselves apart from Republicans and we're in all these different ways. But it was like, like I said, they were trying to out-Republican the, the Republicans. I wonder what we should be, what we should take from that. It was 25, 30 years ago where there really was not as much of a difference maybe between Republicans and, and Democrats and the lessons to be learned from that hard fist, broken windows policy you write about and just mixed results at the best and, and horrific results at worst. You know, I think that, yes, there was a time where Democrats saw their way back into politics as being tough on crime. Right. You know, there's a reason why um, both the president and vice president were both drug warriors, right? Why, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. Yeah. Um, Kurt Schmoke is mayor of Baltimore. He was able to become electable as a black Democrat mm -hmm. by first being a prosecutor. That that sure. was a path that many Democrats sort of took into office. Mm -hmm. And it was because the Republicans had done so well at saying, we're the people who will keep you safe. Mm -hmm. So the only way to become electable um, in the 80s and 90s was to to race the Republicans to the bottom. Um, I think that the public should hold those folks accountable today. That somebody like Joe Biden, who has his hands over every crime bill going back to the, the first Reagan administration, um, has a responsibility to repair the harm. You know, we talked about that 100 to 1 sentencing disparity or you know, between crack and powder cocaine that makes no sense because they're the same substance. Hmm. That was reduced 
under the Obama administration in 2010 to 18 to one. It's still 18, and yeah. It's still 18 to one, right? That like with all we know about the substance, with all we know about the way that it spurred mass incarceration, there hasn't been enough political will to eliminate it entirely. Hmm. And who better than Joe Biden as, you know, really like the head Democrat pushing those policies, someone whose son was a crack addict mm. at the time that he was calling for the execution of people in possession of crack. Mm. I think that he has a responsibility to make that right beyond just speeches saying, ah, we didn't know I was wrong, right. right? That there's still work to be done. And we have to, I think as a public hold elected officials, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, we have to hold everybody accountable to giving us good, useful policy. Hmm. Otherwise, we're ruining lives and we're wasting money hmm. and we're missing opportunities to shore up these cracks hmm. in our social safety, right? It, you know, Because we didn't get things right during crack, those are the gaps that people are still falling through now with, with fentanyl hmm. and, with, and, and with opioids. The reason why all that we have to offer opioid addicts is the police Mm -hmm. Is because we didn't create a system during crack, yeah, to yeah. to 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 create an alternative, yeah. Band aids, right? Band aids, if that, not not mm -hmm. not taking care of the the wounds for sure. Yeah. So you make a really interesting point too about talk about something that's been mythologized or propagandized or demonized. You know, hip hop and just like hip hop as part of it, not the only thing, but that really kind of signaled the end of this of this era, um, the chronic, I mean, the chronic is about weed. And if on a very similar level, like weed is much less, you know, destructive, I guess, right. Than, yeah. than cocaine. And I always tell my students, this, my high school students about this. I feel like I've been saying this for 10 years, just about smoking, like talking like nicotine, like how great, I mean, vaping has changed things a bit, but how great it is that these generations, these younger generations, they don't smoke anymore. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. We remember in our lifetime, like, I mean, now you see somebody smoking. I said, I mean, you know, California, it's just like, whoa, somebody's smoking. My kids, are, <laughs> yeah. my kids are seven and five and are just like shocked. But this idea that like, as it was written about, even like in the mid nineties, it was just like, yeah, people, the, this generation, they, they called the blunt generation at that time. They have a disdain for hard drugs. That was pretty cool. As well yeah. as just, you know, you talk about like just community standing up, talk about a hardy, you know, black community, which, you know, of course, has had so many obstacles is, is putting it lightly over the years. You know, you talk about individual stories of groups, you know, stepping in like the Nation of Islam and on the East Coast and, you know, like not in our neighborhood type of thing and really just individuals making making a difference. You end with towards the end, you talk about Atlanta in the COVID era. So, you know, a couple of years ago. And there were some violent incidents that may or, not have been, may or may not have been connected to, you know, kids on the corner, for the most part, selling waters. Yeah. And, you know, you're like, hey, that's that's a substance too, just like another thing. And it's kind of like, what, what might be coming next? I wonder how, if you can explain that story a little bit about the outlawing. I, hope, I don't know if that's been changed. I hope it has. The outlawing of, you know, guys selling, kids selling water in a hot Atlanta summer and kind of how that's indicative of the way that we are oppressive, especially to young people. And, yeah. and people of color. You know, when I finished this book, um, I was really disappointed, you know, when I looked around at the world. Um, you know, 2020 uh, was when my writing really finished in earnest. And I felt like I had learned these lessons from the crack era and I had kind of seen the factors that facilitated it in terms of just 
such disaffection among communities of color in particular. And, you know, in 2020, we're dealing, or we were dealing with, you know, COVID, which completely, again, had hit Black folks hardest, first, worst. Um, we were also dealing with protests about, you know, uh, economic conditions, uh, policing, the things that we were protesting, you know, going into the crack era. And, you know, I looked around and I saw these young men, you know, middle school, high school aged who were selling bottled water in Atlanta, which is something that, you know, if you've ever lived in the South, you just see, <laughs> you know, people make a few bucks here and there by, you know, buying water wholesale and selling a resale. Hmm. So, um, or a retail. There were a few incidents where people felt threatened by these young men, and it turned into an effort to criminalize selling water. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, that we said decades ago that it was about crack, that it was about this powerful substance, mm. but now you have a substance as simple as water. The most neutral people, substance on earth, right? <laughs> you know, like really getting people, you know, uh, uh, up in arms. And that signaled to me that we hadn't developed the empathy that we need for young people, mm -hmm. especially young Black people and young, and young Black men in particular. Mm -hmm. um, having been a young Black man, it's so hard to get that first job. You're still young. It's, uh, uh, ish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know but i remember what it was like to to like to like want things and to mm -hmm. want to be a part of the world and to feel shut out and then to also to be criminalized as you're trying to make an effort and i thought how different it would be if this time around if instead of offering you know policing as an option if we said you know hey business owners how can we create a program where where you can pay these young people mm. over the summer? Because they're obviously hardworking. They're obviously industrious. They're obviously yeah. creative. You know what I mean? That yeah. uh, that like instead of framing them as a problem, how can we leverage what they're already doing and you know make it something good? Mm -hmm. And we 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 owe it to young people to do that. That you know that they're only making the best of the world that we've given them. Right. We've given them a pretty pretty messed up world hmm. so you know whatever we can do things big and small like let's do that it's a great place to end i in 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 preparing for this interview i really thought this conversation i really thought that i would be talking a lot more about the individual stories which are maybe the best i mean the book is so good because it melds the historical with the individual stories i want people listening to buy the book i want people listening to read those individual stories because they're so compelling you talked about you know giving young people a chance so Sean McRae, who's now a you know a basketball coach, I think all of us know that 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 great mentor at, at a school who just is all about the kids, is all about helping. And there's that beautiful story about where he was a slight little aside here, but that's another thing about this book. Like you talk about, it's not like people are on the on the corner just saying, you know, come here, kid, let me get you addicted to drugs, right? Something about the book that was just like how Sean and so many others kind of dipped in and out of selling. Right. It wasn't like his 24 seven for 15 straight years. You know, there were times when he was doing well financially in other ways. There were times when he said, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. You know, he was in school, all, you know, all those different things. But it seems like maybe towards the end of his time when he's doing some selling, he's like, this is it. I'm, I'm never going to do it again. 
He's driving through. He sees this kid, 11, 12 year old kid who's, you know, fussing with his mom, maybe like starting a fight of some sort. Gets his kid, talks to him, finds out he loves hoops. Sean's been coaching hoops, gets him in the program. The kid brings in other friends and it just becomes a self-propelling thing. Beautiful story. And I guess my last question for you is you talked about that pessimism in the macro, right? The pessimism about the world and how could you not be in, you know, you same things that were being talked about in 1982, often being talked about in 2023. Did the individual stories, and they don't all have beautiful, happy, neat endings, but do those individual stories give you some some more optimism with with Elgin and and you know Lenny, who's now Miss and doing great work um, with you know helping others to get out of addiction? Do those individual stories give you some some lift, some hope? They do. You know that in terms of what we do about society and, and our systems, you know, I think that those are really complex, you know, questions. But what's what's clear to me is that we survived the crack epidemic through the power of community care and individual action. And, you know, we kept each other alive through those mm. small gestures long enough for the storm to pass. Mm. So, you know. I am deeply invested in, in mentorship. I'm deeply invested in, you know, if there's one thing that you care about, if there's one group that you care about or an issue, you know, do something, you know, like small things even, and especially if there's a young person that you can prevent from going down maybe some of the wrong roads that you went down, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that that's something that, that you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is as important as the big policy, mm-hmm. you know, that if enough of us do that, then then we can really uh, save your, save ourselves. Yeah, I think is the way to put it. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's not lip service to say that you really do humanize them. I mean, how do you not empathize with with Lenny? She was I mean, the trauma. She was a sexual abuse victim, at least twice rape. I mean, let's not put a nicer word on it. That one harrowing situation where she was almost a victim of maybe being killed, you know, with that guy who was driving her through the night and the meat hook and the whole deal. You know, an Elgin who had a father who was never the role model for him. And, you know, it literally was selling off his own clothes, Elgin's father to get make money for drugs. And how about that um, odd couple where a couple of the his fellow drug sellers just kind of moved into the apartment? Yeah. <laughs> a couple yeah. buddies, you know, a couple buddies of mine. And, you know, of course, like talk about Sean's story, you do an incredible job with the history, with the the macro. We didn't even get into the whole CIA and Nicaragua, Iran-Contra, which is something that um, you do a great job with and the Dark Alliance stories. Long story short, what a work. It's just been a pleasure and an honor to be able to speak to you about such a book that humanizes and also puts a, a larger historical stamp on something. You are well within your rights to just chill and relax and be a and never write a book again. But if you want to share what any uh, future projects you're working on, you want to share? <laughs> I'm um, very interested in podcasting, actually. Okay. I think that um, that there's something to putting sound to to these stories, and especially as a black storyteller, um, uh, including black expressiveness. Mm. as a way of making some of these stories feel more immediate. I uh, read my own audio book as, as practice. Oh, cool. So I'm uh, excited to see what I can do through, you know, uh, in long form storytelling Mm -hmm. through podcasting. Would it be the book? Would it be 
some of the book and some other things? You know, um, I'm very interested in maybe doing more around Jimmy's world. Okay. And, and the story of Janet Cook. Yeah. Give me, give me 10 seconds. I'm going to, I'm going to pre-subscribe to it. All right. Even though it doesn't exist. I'm going okay. <laughs> to manifest it, you know, into reality. <laughs> I would, I would definitely subscribe to that. Well, well, thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure talking to you. People need to buy the book. It's, it's one world lit. Am I correct on that? It is. That's right. It's uh, When Crack Was King, available everywhere. Books are sold, uh, published by One World Random House. Don't forget about the X. Donovan X Ramsey can be found online for sure. Any any cool bookstores that you want to shout out? I know we can buy it anywhere. Yeah, I love Reparations Club in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. I love Ford Keeps in Atlanta okay. and McNally Jackson all throughout New York. Thanks again so much. Been a pleasure and I wish you great luck in, in your continued writing. Thank you so much, Peter. This was fantastic. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Donovan X. Ramsey. And again, great luck to him with his continued writing. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1, the number one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. There's a $3, $5, and $10 tier. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This month's bonus episode is with Daniel Allen Cox. You're not going to want to miss that one. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Check out the next episode with Ethan Chitanye, which airs today, July 18th. Ethan is the author of Singer Distance, a novel lauded by NPR Books and The Millions, among others. His short fiction has appeared in a variety of literary journals, including the Kenyan Review Online, and he has won a Pushcart Prize and been listed as notable in the best American short stories. Again, the episode with Ethan will air today, around noon Pacific Time, July 18th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Donovan X. Ramsey, whose work, like When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era, gives you chills at will. Mm